Welcome to Private Equity Laid Bare, the podcast. My guest today is James Ranger. And James is a good friend of mine and he's a banker. Yes, bankers still exist and I have one on the line. So James, welcome. Uh, and just please say a word or two about what you do in life. Hi, Ludovic. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so I am, as you say, a banker, possibly a, a more endangered species in leveraged finance than we used to be. But uh, I run the Sponsors and Structured Finance Group at Lloyd's, which covers a variety of asset classes, but um, particularly focused on, on leverage finance, both origination and distribution. And, and basically, the reason I wanted to have you very badly on this podcast is, is because I'm very worried about you. Um, you know, I, I've been knowing you for 15 years, and, and I'm really afraid that you may disappear indeed. So can you tell us where you, you, you still have stuff to do, like, like where these private debt people leave you some room to breathe and like, you know, maybe give us a, an idea about where you were in 2008, the kind of things you were doing in 2008, and then what kind of things when you are left to do now <laughs> it, it doesn't feel like i'm running out of things to do at the moment that's for sure but um no i think i think you make an important point so i mean the, the rise of private debt which i'm sure you've talked about on this podcast and certainly we've spoken about many times has been astronomic particularly in the last six or seven years, but it was um, it started to emerge certainly around 2008, 2009 at the end of the, the global financial crisis, certainly in, in the UK. Um, it had been around a little while longer in the US. But if I think back to what, what Lloyd's did then, um, and if I and then play forward to where the market is now. So 2007, 2008, the mid-market leverage finance space, so for us that in the UK, that's deals of up to around £250 million, was dominated particularly by the UK commercial banks. So um, the two biggest players were, were NatWest or RBS, as they were called then, and HBOS. Lloyd's was active as well, though, in the mid-market. Barclays had a, had a decent-sized mid-market uh, leverage finance business as well. And then there was a whole bunch of other banks. And, and, and generally, deals would be club deals. Um, so the banks would get together if it was more than they could hold on their own. And it was quite a relationship-led, relatively cozy market. Um, and banks built up pretty big balance sheets. In the larger end of the market, the underwriting distribution end of the market, so really anything above around 250 million of debt, um, again, bank-led, the investment banks would play as well as the commercial banks, and typically deals would be underwritten and then sold down either to other banks, but also to a very large CLO market, institutional debt market. So basically, the size, sorry, the size we're talking about is the size of a, of a loan, right? So if a loan was up to 250 it was basically the commercial banks, and then beyond 250, uh, you would you would source it, let's say, and then and then sell sell it to someone else, and this would be like uh, an investment bank or CLOs or maybe directly to institutional investors, etc. Uh, uh, absolutely, Ludovic. So, um, 
and, and and look, the size would move around depending on the client, but but typically around 250 million would be around where you'd start to, to actively get into the underwriting distribution and this, market. And this that would be only senior, or that would also include junior. I.e., you would be doing the whole thing and then just saying, okay, I will find somebody else to buy the junior part, and I keep the senior part, even like for the smaller uh, uh, parts. Or how how would that work? What kind of debt were you giving? So back before the financial crisis, banks were actively holding both senior debt and mezzanine debt on their balance sheet. So we we may syndicate some, um, but but we we could hold both senior debt. We we would hold mezzanine debt at Lloyd's. Some of the other banks would would be far more aggressive in terms of holding bigger junior debt positions. Um, now we'd still we'd. In the U.S., sorry, it was not quite like that, right? In the U.S., you would have like a junk bond market that would be pretty big. And yeah, so, so in the U.S. market, yes, more established high-yield bond market. I mean, to be fair, there was also a high-yield bond market in, in Europe as well at the time, but, but nowhere near as sizable as, as the U.S. high-yield bond market. Um, you did have funds, so you had if you like, the, the precursors to, pri- to a lot of the private debt funds, but they typically tended to play in mezzanine debt. So they wanted yields above 10%. They might take equity warrants in the deals as well. And we, may sell, we might underwrite and sell mezzanine to them. We might uh, underwrite and hold mezzanine ourselves. But okay, typically so it was... You were competing e- with them already? On, on, on that not, not, yeah, yes, I think that's right. Yeah, we were competing. I mean, we, we, the scale of those funds was far, far smaller than the size and the punching power of the banks back then. Um, so it didn't feel as intense as perhaps the competition with private debt is today. But yes, they, they were a part of the ecosystem um, and on, on certain deals, particularly smaller deals, they may compete. But, but typically they were providing mezzanine and the banks would continue to provide senior and in the mid-market, which is where the private debt funds have established themselves, there, was, there wasn't really any alternative to a bank-led deal. Yeah, so that's a below 250. And, and, and the, but the CLO is still around, right? So you could still do like all this underwriting and then selling to CLOs. Is that still something you, you, maybe you do? Or, or private debt funds have come into that space, compete with a CLO and then shrink you because you were, you were giving the deals to CLOs? Yeah, so, so the CLOs absolutely still exist, or CLOs 2.0, as they tended to be called after the global financial crisis. They still exist. They're a big part of the market. And all of these big jumbo deals like ASDA or uh, INEOS or the other deals you'll see in the headlines at the moment will be sold, or large portions of those deals will be sold to the CLOs. The, the difference between a CLO and a private debt fund is a CLO typically needs to invest in liquid and rated paper. So typically the, the borrower will need to go and get a public or sometimes a private, but a, but a rating from two of the three uh, rating agencies. And typically those CLOs will want the debt overall debt size to be big enough so that they can trade in and out of that paper so they can sell and buy. That, and that, that means they tend to... Sorry, Lydia. Yeah, so you're still the main purveyor of it to these guys, right? You're still the one who's sourcing most of the deals to the CLO people. C- c- correct. So the banks will underwrite and sell into the CLO market. We will help our clients get a rating on the deal if they don't have one already. We'll structure that deal. The CLOs do not want to be direct lenders. So they, unlike the private debt funds who want to be interfacing directly with the borrower, the CLOs want a prepackaged 
deal with a bow around it where everything is done, the deal's been done, and they can just buy a tranche of that deal and then, then either hold it or trade it on to other people in the market. In okay. due, due so course. that's leaving you some space. You, you then have a, a reason to exist then as, as this origination uh, person. But for sure, for sure. So, so the larger end of the market, and I would say those liquid deals, tends to still be 250 million sterling equivalent is a good uh, benchmark size. Where the private debt funds have come in, though, and, and taken massive market share as, as an asset class, um, and particularly from the banks, is in that mid-market, so sub-250 million of debt space, where because, the banks were preeminent before 2008. Because above the 250, you also have, in Europe, the high-yield market that has developed. And so it means that on both of these things, the banks then are playing quite a big role because if it's something above 250, either you are originate for a CLO or you may underwrite for public offering of, of the debt. So the bank is playing quite a big role still on that uh, place, right? Yes, they are. And the banks are still the preeminent underwriters. However, you are beginning to see that come under pressure. And that's really, so if, if you think about the last 10 years, the first sort of six or seven years, private debt came into Europe after the financial crisis. Banks were put under a lot of pressure to, to um, reduce the riskier parts of their balance sheet. And leverage finance obviously was one of the areas that came under a lot of regulatory challenge. That opened up um, some, some blue space for the funds private debt funds to come into in the mid-market. So really by about 2018, the funds had taken, depending on which stats you look at, but roughly 50% of all mid-market deals were being led by private debt funds. So the banks have lost a lot of share in that market. Not all of it um, unintentionally. I mean, we, we have been under pressure to reduce our exposure in leverage finance. So Lloyd's at the, in, in 2008-9, Lloyds and HBOS combined probably had a balance sheet of over 10 billion in leveraged finance loans, predominantly mid-market. Um, today, we'd be closer to 2.5 billion. So we have massively reduced our exposure to that asset class and the funds have come in. But, but really, the story of the last three or four years, and perhaps the story of the next three or four years, will be increasing competition between the private debt funds and the banks at the larger end of the market. Okay. So... Yeah, so that, that is pretty, yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say, so, so you see the private debt funds now, if you think about an area, so I know you've, I think you've had Blair on this, this podcast before, um, very next. big funds raising $10 billion funds. They can now write checks of up to a billion. We've seen, seen some of these private debt funds writing checks for 500 to a billion. That competes head on with either a high yield bond or with an underwritten deal into the CLOs. So that really is where the battleground is, is beginning to be fought between commercial banks, investment banks, and the debt funds for, uh, for share of uh, borrower mines. And so I think it's pretty clear above 250. I'm quite surprised on below 250 that the banks still have 50% shares because you said you, you had to lower your risk and everything. But you still have an entire capital structure here to finance. You have some junior play, you have some junior tranches, senior tranches, etc. And the banks, even below 250, can they hold like the junior tranches of debt? No, they can't. They can't hold the junior tranches. But, but so what but do what, they do then? How do you manage? So, so, yeah. So so the competition is quite interesting. So in that, that that lower end of the market, banks are offering a completely different product to the funds. So the private debt funds, as you know, are offering Unitranche. Now, all a Unitranche is, is a single tranche of debt that replaces where we were back at the start of this story in 2007 with banks providing senior debt and then mezzanine debt. 
all that happened is the funds have bl blended that together to create one tranche, say, of 6 or 7% yield, which is more levered than a bank would typically provide senior yeah. debt. So what the banks are offering today and what we continue to offer is a lower levered structure to private equity to, to, to finance their deals, but a cheaper structure. So, so, so the question really for the client today is, do they want the extra leverage that they can get from a, a um, private debt fund? But remember that the incremental cost, if I can, if yeah. I can lend them four times leverage at 4% margins and a, a fund can do five to six times leverage at six or seven percent margins, then that incremental cost of that extra turn or two of leverage mm -hmm. is often in the mid-teens. And that's obviously the price at which the private equity house would like to deploy equity. Mm -hmm. So actually you get some really interesting debates about whether people want more leverage at higher cost or if they want a lower geared, cheaper bank deal. Okay, uh, and that's I, really the debate. I was, I was going to say, I was going to guess, but the numbers would be if you want up to three times CBTA, you go to GEMS and you get an unbeatable deals. But if you really want to go to six times CBTA, then you need to go to a private debt fund. You're going to pay the price for that. And so then you'll have to think whether the marginal gain is worth a marginal cost. But you're saying that you would be relaxed up to four times CBTA and then these guys would be more like six times? Is that that small? It's, it's, it's all, all, all very credit related, Lula. So it depends on the quality of the underlying borrower and the strength of the credit. We will lend on a senior debt basis, sometimes up to five times leverage in senior debt. But what five you typically expect is the unit tranche would be at least a turn, usually a turn and a half to two turns more levered than the, the equivalent senior. So it's usually a turn to two turns differential in leverage that you can get what from the two options. What do you mean by options. terms? Sorry, turn of EBITDA, so times EBITDA, yeah. turn yeah. of leverage. Um, but but that's, that's not really the end of the story in terms of the, it's not a binary competition. So the other reason the banks are still very, very um, relevant to the market, and then my view are here to stay, is, is you still need banks in a deal, even if you're doing a private debt deal. And the reason you need banks, partly because companies need working capital facilities, they need what we call revolving credit facilities, RCFs. Private debt funds hate providing those because they don't like capital that has to recycle debt that can be redrawn. That's quite hard with a, with a fund structure. And also, um, companies want the ancillaries that a bank provides. So if you need clearing, if you need corporate credit cards, if you need trade finance, if you need supplier finance, all of that all of stuff, merchant acquiring... There are some small fintech firms that offer all of that for like a fraction of a cost, no? Not really yet. I mean, maybe that's where the, the, the world you, goes. But if, if, if you look yeah. at the corporate banking market in terms of those ancillary products, it's still yeah, yeah. vastly for, for dominated large companies, by, right? on, on by, the smaller, by, yeah. On the smaller end, it's, it's a bit pa Perhaps at the smaller end, but for, for commercial sort of, if you like, 5 million of EBITDA and bigger companies, mid-market and large-cap companies. So, so but, but for a bank to provide that, they need security. They need to be carved out of the capital structure. So, so what you tend to find is on any private debt fund deal, there is still an ask for a bank to provide what we call a super senior RCF. So something that is less risky than the unit tranche because the banks don't want to play in that, that, that more highly geared part of the structure. It will sit at the top of the tree in terms of its priority over any security um, that, that's raised in an acceleration. Um, and the banks are needed. So every single private debt fund tends to still need a bank around it. And that's why the banks are still relevant there. And now we're starting to see more and more hybrids coming into the market as well. So the other way to structure one of these deals, and it's sort of back to the future in terms of where we are, were in 2007, 
is to, to create what we call a hybrid unit tranche or a first loss, second loss tranche, which is where the borrower says, well, actually, I want a private debt fund because I want the extra leverage, but actually I want a bank in the deal as well, perhaps relationship, perhaps ancillary product, but also, frankly, a bank can lend money generally cheaper than a fund. So it'll ask the bank to do the second loss tranche, perhaps the first, if you like, 40% of the capital structure, and then it'll ask the fund to do what they call the first loss tranche, effectively junior debt, but yes, turned on its head because the junior debt is bigger. Yeah. So, so, so it, it, we have a re- as a bank, we have a really interesting relationship with private debt. We compete with them. We partner with them. And then the third part of the, the puzzle as well is I actually have private debt as my client because I have a very big fund finance business. So the other opportunity for banks is to lend um, bridge facilities, gearing facilities, leverage facilities to private debt funds themselves. So yeah, it, gonna, it, it, it's an interesting relationship. I was going to bring this up because this is not only to private debt funds that you give all these subscription lines and, and the like, right? So it is also all the private market funds. So this business has been booming for banks, right? It, it's, it's a very successful asset class, and you're absolutely right. It all began with private equity rather than private debt. So pr- private equity have been using subscription lines, as you know, for, for, for a long time, uh, a couple of decades. Um, but but that, that, those sort of facilities are now also clearly used by, by the private in- debt industry as well. Yeah, and, and, um, and you, are there some funds as well in the private debt market that actually borrow in order to lend more? So, so like a bit like these BDCs in the US, right? Then, then they would probably borrow from a bank in order to lend more to a company, effectively recreating a junior and senior tranche, no? Uh, it, it is leverage, absolutely, but leverage uh, at, a, at a different part of the structure, absolutely. Yeah, so you also provide some, some debt to things like BDCs and the like, and therefore, you're also lending to, to like these private debt funds. That's right. We, we, we do lend to the private debt funds. I mean, typically for, for Lloyd's, we tend to be lending secured on their LP commitments. So we don't, we're not lending looking down, we're lending looking up into the fund. But yeah, absolutely. That, that, and that's why I mean that, that private debt, as well as a competitor, as well as a partner, they also can be a, a client of, of ours. No, but what I was wondering was whether you don't also like lend to the fund for, for deployment. So they, let me take an example. A fund has 100 million that they raise from LPs to lend, but then they will borrow another 100 million from, let's say, a bank in order to lend 200 million in unit tranches. Would, would that happen or not? It, it can happen. So that, that, that's, that's what we would call gearing or, or a leverage facility. So they're effectively leveraging up the capital okay. they've raised to lend more. Typically, I mean, for us, we, we don't tend to play in that, that part of the market. Typically, subscription lines or bridging facilities, as they call, they're called in Europe, tend to be put in place to give the fund more operational flexibility. So rather than every time they do a deal, they, want to, they yeah, have to yeah, go yeah. to 100 LPs. It, it's something that allows them to just do drawdowns maybe twice a year, sometimes once a year. But clearly, even delaying a drawdown because you're, for operational purposes still will help your IRR. Yeah, the, tremendously, especially at the beginning of funds life. And people should not use IR, but they seem to be addicted. So yes. Um, then, um, and it, I think it's more of a US thing as well to provide fund leverage, um, like to, 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 to have private debt funds that are, that are levered themselves. Um, it, it, yeah. it is. And it, interestingly, Ludo, it, it, it's much more common in the US market and actually Historically in Europe, European LPs have been far less comfortable with leverage in private debt funds. 
Um, so you often see some private debt funds who might have one strategy that's US LP led that will be levered and one strategy that's European LP led that, that, that may be unlevered. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's a puzzling thing because if you lever up a private debt fund that does Unitranch, what you have done effectively is that you have recreated a junior and senior structure. So when you are uh, committing money to a levered private debt fund, you are effectively investing in a junior debt fund. Even though the fund tells you, I, I do unit tranche and it's secured, blah, blah, blah. Because they have debt on the fund, you are effectively holding a junior tranche. For, for sure. And, and my, my advice to an LP would always be, look at the returns that you're being promised by the... Um, by the fund, um, if you're if they're promising you double-digit returns or close, then by definition you are investing in junior debt rather than than senior debt, which would, yeah. would typically have a yeah. much lower or, yield. Or, or, or somebody gives you a low return and you are in, in junior debt, they ch just charge a lot more fees. But 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 <laughs> usually indeed, uh, that will be the case. Actually, it's 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 always this this, this good rule of thumb and common sense. And uh, I have a student of mine who I was very proud of. Uh, there, there was a scandal recently, right? This this Grass Hill uh, uh, problem, and and my student was was uh, uh, close to it. Um, and then I and I asked her. I said, like, did you advise your clients to 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 invest in there? What what did you do? And she said, no. I was like, well, I'm the only one not to uh, in 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 my group or not to advise my clients because you know I saw it right away. Like they were promising something like five six percent return and say like they were investing in like AAA or pay, you know commercial paper only and it was not possible. Um, and so there was something else. Um, so I think it's a good <laughs> a thing to always think you know with common sense just like this. Um, one last question maybe about subscription lines. Um, it seems to me that they are quite expensive for, for what they are. Um, I guess you would call it high margin products on your side. And, and I'm puzzled by that because they seem to be so risk-free. It seems that, you know, basically an ALP never defaults. You will always get your subscription line repaid mm -hmm. as a banker. What's, why is it so expensive? <laughs> um... Well, it depends on your, how, how you, you view the expense. I mean, generally, subscription lines, if you like, relatively vanilla subscription lines will still be priced at so probably 150 to 180 basis points um, over, uh, over LIBOR or, or, or Sonia. So, so I, would, I wouldn't say they're nowhere near the, the, the price of raising leverage. If, if you think of it from a private equity perspective, so if you wanted to raise leverage at the portfolio company level, you're, you're, you're probably talking yeah, at least twice that. Um, but you're right, the subscription line is typically secured on the LP, so it should be secured on, on um, fairly high-quality credit counterparty. Um, and, and the track record for that industry is very strong. So there's been very yeah, few instances of, of loss. But it, it, is still, it is still a product that, that comes with risk. I mean, typically, one risk you always have, and, and there has been some, some headlines on this in recent years, is fraud risk. So if the GP defrauds its LPs, you may be put in a position where the LP doesn't pay because there's fraud in the fund and the bank, therefore you can be exposed. So you still need to do your diligence on the GP quality and integrity and track record. We always face into the risk in a subscription line of the, of, of the 
can't pay, won't pay scenarios. So, so there is obviously a, uh, the fund has protections against an LP not funding, but there is there is always a risk that that the LP decides not to not to pay and takes the litigation risk or takes and takes the risk of not being um, not being eligible for any more capital redemption. But if it's a fund that has underperformed so badly that that the fund's loss making, then you could be in a position where an LP could refuse to pay. So there's a risk there. Um, and there's always, I guess, some, some systemic risk in this, that, that if an LP has a problem, then you might have that LP that might have that problem across multiple facilities. So there's a little bit of um, correlation risk you run yeah. as a, as a we, subscription vendor. We discussed vendor. that, right, to, to, together once <laughs> at the crisis, saying, you know, like if, if one LP will default, you probably would have all of them defaulting. Correct. So I think I think there's always risk in these products. The, the the other part of this product, which is important to understand, is they can be quite challenging operationally to manage. I mean, if you can, if, as you would expect, with a with a private equity fund or a private debt fund who's using subscription lines, multiple drawdowns, multiple repayments, multiple currencies. And it happens there randomly, is, right? They may call you for a big number, saying like, "Oh, I'm just making my position. I need like." 50 million tomorrow, right? Like, exactly. So, so there's a level of operational um, infrastructure that, that needs to come alongside providing these sorts of facilities. So um, look, I, 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 I don't think you'd ever find me arguing that they're, uh, that they're underpriced. I think there is, okay. there is certainly some risk um, that comes with it. Do you take fees on top of that or, or you just charge 1.5% or are there like a fixed fees for like taking them up? Uh, there, there are fees involved, but they're, they're, they're much smaller than you'd see in, in sort of other other asset classes. Okay. Okay. So I think it's clear why, you, why you're so busy, right? I mean, you do have quite a lot of work. Uh, it, it is a busy time. And, and look, I, I, I think the banks will continue to be busy in leverage finance. I think you will see an interesting dynamic over the years to come as to whether private debt funds continue to take market share, whether we reach, if you like, a natural equilibrium where... Uh, borrowers have the choice of private debt or a bank-led balance sheet deal or a capital markets deal. And, and, and you may see the market just evolve into, into more choice. And I think that can only be good for the, for the borrowers at the end of the day. And we'll have to drive more efficiency um, for all of the players in, in the market. I think the other element, which will be really interesting to see what, how it evolves, you know, is, is, is whether the banks start to raise third-party capital themselves. And we're starting to see yeah. this. So HSBC have announced a private debt fund of their own. Um, uh, we would certainly, uh, it, it would be odd if we weren't considering those sort of strategic options as a bank at the moment. And if you look at a world where there is enormous amounts of liquidity looking to get into alternatives, whether that's debt or yeah, equity, yeah, and, um, and, and, and banks have big origination platforms. They have stellar track records hopefully they have stellar track records we certainly think we do and they have yeah. big client bases so Not actually banks. banks can't if, if banks can't provide leverage finance in the scale that they used to from their own balance sheets well there is the option for banks to start to create their own debt funds and, and really take the debt funds on themselves we would be back to a future again because the banks started in private, and most of private equity outside of the US was started by banks, right? I mean, Nomura started private equity, um, you know, like Permira came out of a bank, like like all, all, all the private equity in Europe was, and, and, and in Asia and the like was, was out of banks. And then the banks depart, you know, they spun out their, their private equity arms. And then now you say, now they're gonna bring in a private debt arm into a bank. So 
it's quite, quite, it is fascinating how the world evolves, although I must, must mention that Lloyd still owns its own private equity firm with uh, LDC, Lloyd's Development Capital, that's, okay. that's still a captive. But um, you're yeah, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. But there is a logic, and it, it's sort of the same logic to why Lloyd's continues to own a private equity firm, is that it is an important product that our clients want to have access to. So there's certainly strategic sense to it, but you need to be able to do it in a way that, that, that is profitable in the context of uh, the regulatory cost of capital you have to hold against these, these asset classes. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, I'm reassured because I was really afraid that you may get out of work and, and, and you know, and then I would have to like cycle the, the world uh, around the world with you, but apparently you, 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 you're very busy, so I'm, I'm, I'm highly reassured. Uh, do take a break to, to cycle. That's important to, to keep up. Okay, so this was um, Bankers Laid Bear. Uh, thank you so much, James, for, for, for joining again. Uh, people, don't forget to, to subscribe and congratulations on your acquisition of one more piece of knowledge. Ciao, ciao.